electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, an activist in Salesforce shares are surging after Starboard reveals the stake and pushes for better margins. Then new products from Adobe, that Figma deal and that exclusive with the CEO. John is in L.A. for that today. Later on, a bull bear debate ahead of Netflix tonight. Some big stocks that used to be untouchable, including Apple and Amazon, now showing a couple of cracks, D. And Carl, we have another rally on our hands, the WCLD Cloud ETF. That's up 10% in just two days. Salesforce, meanwhile, take a look, popping on the news that activist investor Starboard has taken a new stake in the company. No word on the exact value, but this chart we're going to show you guys, it really says it all. Shares here have underperformed the broader market, the tech sector, and its peers over the last few years, which Starboard argues is due to a, quote, subpar mix of growth and profitability. Now, the firm also points out that the company has not generated meaningful operating leverage relative to its peers these years. So CRM is that blue line at the bottom on the chart you're looking at. But what Jeff Smith is saying essentially is that the targets that Salesforce has laid out, guys, they're good, but they're not good enough target of growth plus margin of about 42% versus its peer average of 50%. He compares it to the likes of ServiceNow, um, Adobe, and some others. They say that they have the opportunity to expand margins greater, has better scale than its peers. It's actually you know, a great company. It's number one or number two in many of its businesses, but it's less ambitious than it should be, John. So this is an interesting case of um, seems friendly at the moment, certainly not acrimonious. They seem to be on agreement, the management with Starboard. Can they deliver, though, on these targets? Um, those slides really lay out the case here. Hard to argue with that underperformance. I mean, sign of the times, though. Imagine calling Mark Benioff less ambitious than he should be. <laughs> uh, it's just an interesting landscape that we're in right now where the leaders who brought in the cloud era, think about uh, Salesforce or software as a service, perhaps even pointing to uh, Amazon on infrastructure, Adobe on SaaS, like converting from package software uh, and, and web download software into cloud are being questioned at a level that they hadn't before. And I think a key question for investors now is, is this just sort of a, a market kind of, um, phase that people are going through, impatient investors who don't mm -hmm. understand what's going on, or have some of these companies actually missed a step in a crucial way? Um, you know, w when there are these downturns, people get, you know, short-term memory. Uh, so may maybe there is an issue uh, with Salesforce. It'll be interesting to see how they respond to this. They did a big acquisition with Slack, yep. um, and, and collaboration is a big deal. Adobe getting similar pushback, guys, on that big Figma acquisition. People saying that they overpaid, but is it visionary? We'll see. 
when you talk about that ambition, John, it's interesting because, yes, no one's going to call Benioff <laughs> less ambitious than his peers. But I guess where is it placed? And, yes, he's been extremely acquisitive. You mentioned Slack, but there's been a number of very big um, acquisitions that they've used their stock price to do, which has been dilutive to shareholders. And maybe it tells us, too, that in this moment, shareholders are looking for a focus on margins and cash flow, Carl, versus just that growth versus the big purchases. Um, and I know we're going to be talking to Shantanu uh, in a moment about his recent acquisition. But again, as John says, the market hasn't responded very well to this when there is that focus on profitability. Yep. Uh, we started a few months ago talking about uh, the longer lead cycles at ServiceNow. Microsoft today uh, confirming those layoffs. Obviously, the situation at Adobe, which John's going to get into. And John, as for CRM, only two Dow names have underperformed it uh, even greater this year. Hmm. That's Nike and Intel. And it had flown so high right before it entered the Dow. So uh, <laughs> some of us wondered if that might be the story. The and as you mentioned, Carl, I am live. Yes. Well, and, and being a high flyer from Adobe Max in Los Angeles. This is the first time we're live here in three years. It's a creative conference. Shantanu Narayan, the CEO of Adobe, joins me. Shantanu, we're just talking about your friend Mark Benioff. <laughs> uh, and Starboard getting in there. I think it's sort of emblematic of the questions investors have. And we've seen the reaction in the stock post Figma. What are the things that you feel like need to be answered, that people need to understand about this deal and the broader creative landscape as you're getting ready to kick off, not just Adobe Max, but also an investor, investor day? Well, John, first, thanks so much for being here and taking the time to be with us. And it's, the energy is palpable when you look at Max and the fact that, as you said, after three years, uh, you know, we're back in L.A. And just the energy of talking to people and how creativity continues to make a difference is great. To your question on investors, I think, you know, we use the financial analyst meeting to really talk about our strategy and why digital continues to be a massive uh, tailwind for us when you think about what's happening in terms of how it's transforming, whether it's work, whether it's education, whether it's entertainment. Uh, and I think the macroeconomic environment uh, that exists today, everybody's trying to think uh, about whether there's some short-term opportunity. And I think from our perspective, we're just continuing to say, how do we invest in building this company uh, for the long run? I think specifically as it relates to Figma, Figma is one of those rare companies uh, that has created an incredible new platform, whether it's about advancing product design or about whether it's uh, brainstorming and ideation. And so we just believe that the opportunity to partner with them and to create that sort of next generation of creativity and productivity is, is a you know, game-changing opportunity. And so we're excited about it, and we will at the financial analyst meeting talk about how our core business continues to be strong. I think that's one of the questions mm. uh, that people have, which is, is this a defensive or is this a, you know, a sort of looking around the corner move? And we certainly think it's a looking around the corner. Not defensive. Not defensive at all. Okay, I want to get back to that. But first I want to talk about uh, a theme that you're going to hit on pretty hard at Adobe Max with new product announcements, and that's collaboration. So across Photoshop and Illustrator, it's there. It's part of the case for the Figma acquisition itself. And so there's this kind of collaboration productivity push happening right now in enterprise software some, from some corners where you might not have expected it a few years ago. Salesforce, Slack is part of that. The rise of Atlassian is part of that. What's the most important thing to get right as you pursue that storyline? 
Well, Adobe has actually always been about collaboration, John. And if you think about PDF and the role that PDF plays, PDF's always been about how do you communicate your ideas, but you communicate them in an asynchronous way. And I think what's happened with the pandemic and post-pandemic is in this hybrid work environment, when people are not in the same place at the same time, the question is the sort of innovation that you've done on asynchronous collaboration, how do you do that synchronously? So how do you do the brainstorming? How do you do the ideation? How do you incorporate uh, feedback in a real-time manner so that you can really accelerate uh, because people are trying to personalize content more, they're trying to create these campaigns and distribute the campaigns. And so what we're going to talk about is whether it's what we're doing with Photoshop and Illustrator in terms of share for review, incorporating it, the acquisition, as you know, of Frame.io, uh, which dramatically accelerates what you can do with video, Workfront and what we are doing as it relates to marketing campaigns. Mm -hmm. So it's a theme because it's one of those uh, incredible opportunities for us to get a number of creators and stakeholders, whether it's individuals or whether it's teams, working in a really uh, accelerated fashion. CEO of Goldman Sachs was on Squawk Box this morning talking about just how uncertain, how volatile the economic environment is. Adobe has put out its own holiday projections and it looks like uh, flat in some ways, if you're looking at revenue throughout the season, down in some ways perhaps in units. If you're looking back over the past several years, how choppy, how uncertain is this economic environment from your perspective? Well, I think there are two ways to look at it, John. The first is the macroeconomic environment and consumer confidence and CEO confidence. You probably saw the report where CEOs are a little bit more pessimistic as it relates to the next environment, whether it's what's happening with inflation or what's happening with the energy uh, situation in Europe. So I think most people uh, today, if they were polled, would feel like you know, situation is not going to be as good as it was for the last four or five years in the next 12 months. Having said that, you have to unpack that and also look at what's happening with digital. And as it relates to digital, uh, even if the growth is not the kind of growth that you experienced, that shift uh, of moving from physical to digital is not going to change. And so it may be, you know, a deceleration of the growth relative to what it's happened, but it's still growth and it's still a movement that's going to happen. And so I think you have to unpack what's happening on the overall macroeconomic situation where there's perhaps a little bit more pessimism versus what's happening in digital where that relentless move is only going to continue. So what do you do with workforce, with hiring pace? How, how aggressively do you lean into that digital opportunity versus be wary of the macro? Well, Adobe has always been, I think, really great about focusing on the top line as well as the bottom line when you talk about whether it's the rule of 40 or the rule of 50, and you think about Adobe. I mean, the combination of our revenue growth and profitability put us in a rarefied atmosphere. I think the two things that we do at a time like this is really, are we prioritizing? Are we even more ruthless on the key priorities for the company? So you mentioned collaboration, artificial intelligence, and what we are doing to you know, bring the power of computing to enable people to do things in a more expedited fashion. Adobe Express. I was going to ask is, about Adobe Express. Yeah, Adobe Express and yeah. creativity for all and just enabling billions of people to tell their story. And so I think the first thing we do is a ruthless prioritization of everything that we're doing, and I think that helps. But 
uh, you know, we're always focused on making sure that we're investing for the long run. Mm. And I think we're very diligent and disciplined about our expenses, and we will continue to be. No waste in the company. Okay, so you've got Canva and you've got Microsoft Designer kind of coming for your lunch here in, at that entry level, right? Uh, especially when it comes to, you know, you type in some text that creates an image for you. What's Adobe's response to that? You've already been doing Express for a while, but how much simplifying or, um, or coming sort of entry-level consumer first are you going to do? I think there are two things that are happening there. The first is there is this confluence of productivity and creativity. And so if you're a company like Microsoft that's focused on productivity, you have to add some creative features to what you're doing. Much like Adobe has always also been focused on productivity as it relates to Acrobat. So big picture, when you zoom out, there's a clear alignment of creativity and productivity. But I think the core focus of what Microsoft is doing with designer is really adding small creative elements, whereas the focus of what Adobe does is on making sure that everybody can tell that story with any creative freedom and artistic freedom that they want. So I believe that they're different. We are the largest company on the planet in terms of, uh, you know, consumers or communicators using creative products. And I think if you think about our brand and if you think about what Adobe Express is intended to do, it's really about translating that intent-based or task-based searches that happen on the web and very quickly in a friction-free way, making them uh, have the ability to do that on the web. So perhaps uh, you know, on the web we were a little bit behind, but if you look at what we did with PDF, and ensuring that PDF access on the web uh, is you know, the best possible experience, and we've rapidly made sure that we're the leader in that category. So I, I think even on the web, as it relates to creative and translating search-based desire to a complete uh, content-based output, uh, it's, it's a space that's in our wheelhouse, and we're going to do great. So you're the biggest in the world when it comes to creativity. Does that mean you have to tell the regulators that Figma's about productivity? Well, Figma is really about an adjacency. If you think about what they are doing, uh, product design and really extending that between the designers and developers. You've covered Adobe for a long time and it's really about advancing product design and that was an adjacent category that existed. The second one is about, you know, how do you bring this multiplayer, uh, real-time co-editing platform to our products and that's where, again, they have a technology platform that allows us, but you're right. Big picture, it really is about creativity and productivity. And there's so many massive companies in that space. This is a trillion dollar software market, uh, but it's one that we think we have a particularly unique insight on to deliver value to customers. All right, most of the last 23 years I've covered you guys. Shantanu, thanks for having me here. I thanks for being here. Guys, back to you. Uh, thanks, John. Dow's uh, lost some of its opening gains up 260 as the uh, short end is uh, coming up a little bit. Two-year 444. Still to come, cities bullish on Amazon. Netflix uh, earnings tonight. More pain for Apple. Tech check is just getting started. podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Given these volatile markets, inflation pressure, City says it's all about the landing, and no matter what, Amazon is going to land on its feet. In the case of a so-called soft landing, City thinks Amazon's wallet share gains can boost consumer staple sales as the company keeps prices low. But in the event of an economic hard landing, where unemployment could reach more than 6%, City thinks Amazon will hold on to those wallet gains and grow its AWS and ad businesses. Now, besides Amazon, City also likes Alphabet in the event of a hard landing, saying search, quote, remains a must-buy in good times and bad. Carl? Uh, John, let's get to Netflix tonight. Uh, Q3 earnings after the close. Our next guest says buckle up, bracing for a significant impact from the dollar. Also, he argues unsustainable sub-ads driven by hits like Stranger Things. Joining us this morning, B of A analyst Nat Schindler, who, Nat, threw some cold water on some of the enthusiasm regarding the ad product yesterday. Uh, why do you argue that this, the, the reaction of the, pro the stock lately has been just about the company putting pen to paper, in your words? Well, this is a company that's basically changed from a high growth subscription business to a low growth media business. And that change is one, very difficult. And two, it's not necessarily as profitable as I think people are thinking. It's profitable in the US. There's almost no way they don't make more money on their ad supported tier in the US than they do on their current subscription model. But outside of the US, it's much harder. CPMs or ad pricing in Germany and France, so it's only about 40% of the U.S. level. In Brazil, it's five. It's extraordinarily difficult to make up the subscription revenue lost from the ad tier when you switch to an ad, a lower-priced ad tier product. Do you see any accretion to this new ad model or even from password sharing? Um, well, the password sharing is still nascent and it's still... Um, a very tested product that is difficult to do and is kind of voluntary at this point. So I'm not gonna really write that as a major driver anytime soon. And the company is holding off and saying, if anything, it affects 2024 or later. The ad product will have an impact in the US. It really it depends on how many people downshift from their current $15.50 subscription, which is the normal standard tier, to this new low price 699 subscription price. That's gonna be, is really hard to know because no one, this is a very different product. It's not just ad supported, it's also not HD. 
Right. So, Nat, you're saying that Netflix essentially what was a high growth streaming business is now a low growth media business. What is the right valuation in that case? Does its multiple ultimately come in line with some of the legacy media players? I know that you note that the steep premium already nearly 220 times price to adjusted free cash flow. How how much lower does it have to come down? I would think a lot if that's the business model. Yeah, I mean, there is ways that you could get they could get free cash flow higher and maybe it does come up higher than what I think or the street thinks, but it has to come a long way before it starts looking like media companies. Um, and if you're looking at subgrowth, I mean, the subgrowth for this quarter is only expected to be a million with the street thinking about four million for next quarter. That means for the whole year, you're almost flat. So without real subgrowth, and once this ad product takes off, you're looking at basically in line with macro growth type business like other media companies. So it needs to be multiples that are much closer to that. So they're after to cut expenses dramatically as well as see their stock price fall, in my view. Nat, here's the potential catch-22 that I'm trying to figure out when it comes to Netflix and an ad-supported version. Don't they need a certain amount of scale on that product for it to work and therefore they need people to downgrade, but that's actually kind of bad at the same time. And then if they wanna grow that ad business to be able to target it better for the benefit of certain brands, don't they need it to continue to grow over time? Yeah, this really goes into what's the real elasticity of demand of Netflix. And quite frankly, no one knows that even Netflix because they've never had really much variation in price. So, and you've never been able to do real price testing. They move their prices in entire markets all at the same time. So if you look at um, how they could possibly do this, they need to know not only will they get a downgrade in from a normal price subscription to a lower price subscription and a lot of ads on top of that, which is possible in the US, that can work and be profitable. It is for Hulu. They make more money on their ad supported tier than on their uh, subscription tier. But in other countries, it gets hard. And what they would need is not just uh, to make up some of that money on ads, but also get a whole lot new of new customers in places like Germany and France. That's what is the big question mark. Yeah, that, that, that's going to be one of the key things to watch for uh, tonight is whether or not this can lead to subs over time. Nat, uh, interesting uh, take on this yesterday. Appreciate the time today. Nat Schindler joining Thank us you. from uh, B of A. So what about the rest of tech? Our next guest says Q4 earnings are the next shoe to drop, but she is overweight, more resilient plays like Apple, Alphabet, and Microsoft, the big tech names. Joining us now are Juna Capital Managing Partner, Natasha Lamb. Natasha, good morning to you. Um, so the next shoe to drop, but so far this earnings season is looking a lot like the last one, um, not a disaster, maybe a little better than expected. And we're starting to get ready for that guidance that maybe the shoe drops early next year instead for a Q4, what we're going into. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the market action we've seen this year has been due to falling P.E. ratios as the Fed's been raising interest rates and investors have been pricing in the likelihood of earnings downgrades. And tech's been the hardest hit. Tech sector multiples this year have fallen 33% on average. Um, on the more dramatic side, we've seen Meta's P.E. multiple cut in half since the beginning of the year. Uh, it was trading at 22 times, now it's trading at 11 times. 
Although, of course, Meta's problems extend beyond macro factors. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, Google and Apple have shown more resilience and maintained lower than average multiple declines. Um, and Apple's actually managed to outperform the S&P. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's true. The next shoe to drop is the earnings themselves. And we're starting to see downward revisions in forward estimates um, so far in the communication sector and the semiconductor industry. But we expect there will be a broader tech sector um, impact soon. And indeed, economic activity does look to have slowed in the third quarter. Uh, we'll get the first print on that at the end of October. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, we're keeping a close eye on Q3 earnings next week, uh, yep. management outlooks and analyst revisions to confirm that that those higher interest rates are indeed working their right. way. And, and maybe maybe some demand pullback we've seen from the likes of FedEx and Micron that, that has been happening quickly. Um, but let's talk about the opportunity here, because let me quote Jeff Smith from Starboard this morning. He said to get an opportunity to buy these kinds of companies at these valuations. He's been dreaming of that for years. And certainly we're seeing more activity from not just activist investors, but PE shops. Where would you be looking? And I mean, there's so many. And we talk about the perils of that as well. A lot of these companies may not reach their peak valuations ever again. Yeah, I think that that's true. So you need to be selective when you're positioning in this environment. Uh, we're overweight, more resilient names like Apple, Google, and Microsoft. Um, all of that, all of those companies are expected to grow revenues somewhere between nine and 12%. They've got positive earnings growth and we're seeing strength in search and cloud. Um, on the other side of the coin, and here's a, a good example of a company that may may not see its peak um, valuation again. Uh, we, we're maintaining our underweight in Meta, where a lot of the ESG risks we've been flagging, governance in particular, are now coming home to roost and exposing the material impact of poor governance at the company. Um, so far, that's translated into $700 billion in lost value. That's a 60% drop in the stock. And we expect negative revenue growth this year. Um, that's a far cry from the 37% growth we saw last year. And we expect a 20% drop in earnings, which is due in large part to expensive and uncertain investments in the metaverse. Uh, we're also seeing issues like Cambridge Analytica, that scandal, uh, violations of children's privacy translate into fines and settlements. Um, but of course, you know, Meta's also facing the iOS privacy changes, TikTok competition, um, and a significant slowdown in ad revenue, um, which goes for, for you know, the whole yeah. tech industry. Long list of challenges there for Mark Zuckerberg and Meta that you just laid out. Uh, Natasha, thanks very much. Natasha Lamb. Intel slashing the prospective valuation for Mobileye, but could that be a smart thing? We will discuss next. Don't go away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back to Tech Talk. I'm Bertha Coombs, and this is your CNBC News Update at this hour. Goldman Sachs shares helping lead the S&P 500. Traders reacting positively to strong quarterly results and a major restructuring plan. CEO David Solomon also telling investors to be more wary of risk-taking. I think it's time to be cautious. Um, if, you look at, if you look at what most economists are predicting, they're predicting slow to no growth in the U.S. They're predicting negative growth across other developed economies in Europe. And so that environment heading into 2023 is one that I think you've got to be cautious and prepared for. Lockheed Martin surging after topping earnings estimates. Lockheed also adding $14 billion to its stock buyback program. And homebuilder sentiment fell sharply this month thanks to higher mortgage rates and continuing supply chain constraints. With the exception of a short-lived drop at the beginning of the pandemic, the NHAB index is at its lowest level in over 10 years. And federal prosecutors have charged a French multinational company with sponsoring the terrorist group ISIS. Lafarge Cement has pleaded guilty to paying ISIS about $17 million to help keep a plant in Syria running. Lafarge denies the payments were made to support terrorist attacks made by ISIS. Back over to you, Carl. Sorry, John. I will take it. Wow, Bertha, thanks. Uh, some IPO-related news this morning. Intel cutting the valuation for self-driving car unit Mobileye ahead of what's expected to be one of the biggest tech listings of the year, which, I mean, there aren't a lot of tech listings this year. The new valuation around $16 billion, less than a third of what was initially expected. That's not the first cut that we've seen as companies across public and private markets take a hit. Another widely anticipated IPO prospect, Instacart, lowered numbers three times this year. 76% of the more than $400, $100 million plus IPOs between 2019 and 2021 are underwater. Now that said, the company's also now selling fewer shares than expected. That's an option that could pervert, preserve some extra gains for the company in Intel's case, for insiders in Instacart's case, uh, if, a, if a rebound happens, Carl. But that's the question, right? Do you hold on to more expecting that now is an unusually low market or, you know, if things head lower, ouch. Yeah, pretty interesting setup here regarding some of these listings. We talked a while ago about Harley and Livewire, obviously VW and Porsche. Uh, D16 is clearly not 50, although as we pointed out this morning, it's still almost um, maybe a seventh of Intel's total market cap. And it's not 30 either. There was reports it could go for that amount, 30 billion that is. But guys, you know what's doing worse than the broader IPO market? Autonomous driving SPACs. Take a look at how they have done over the last year. You've got Embark Technology down 96%, Aurora 77%, Velodyne 85%. So perhaps not surprising um, that this company, Mobileye, has had to mark it down and down. But again, um, like you said, John, it kind of the share structure is going to keep Intel in control here for perhaps a later date if the market rebounds. Meanwhile, Needham is adding Taiwan Semi to its conviction list. Find out why with the analyst behind that call. He's up next. Tech Check is back in two. Let's get to Taiwan. Semi shares are down about 3%. Needham adding the name to its conviction list, expecting double-digit growth in 2023 as the company rebounds. Price target there of $110. 
Pershare here to discuss the analyst behind that call, Charles Shee of Needham. Charles, thanks for being with us this morning. Lay out the case for our audience. Why are you bullish on this name, given this is a weak time cyclically for chips? And many would argue that the geopolitical risk is rising. Um, yes, I think uh, this is a basically a stock call, uh, but also a, a call on the company fundamentals. Um, well, you already, let, let me get to the number two first. Uh, you already mentioned that, uh, well, I'm, I'm expecting Taiwan Semi to grow roughly 10% on the top line next year, uh, despite that uh, we are entering a semiconductor downturn uh, into uh, 2023. Um, I would say when we look at downturn, we must look at the unit growth rate. And the Taiwan Semi, I do expect that the unit shipment going to go down by roughly uh, uh, 10% next year. Um, that is going to, we're going to see a lift in Q1 uh, 23. But at the same time, I would say the pricing growth uh, coming from Taiwan Semi is going to more than offset the unit growth declines into next year. When I say pricing growth, I'm not talking about they raise price across the board. Well, that's part of the equation. But uh, the greater part of that is there's a mix of a Taiwan Semi product shift to uh, the more advanced 5 nanometer and the 3 nanometer node into next year. You probably heard all those companies, AMD, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, they are cutting back, um, but they are not slowing down their migration into the more advanced five nanometer node. Apple is going to move to the three nanometer node next year. All those migrations to the better technology does not slow down in a downturn. And those technology uh, it's, uh, provides better value. Taiwan Semi charges higher price. Our estimate is the pricing Five nanometer is 50% higher than seven, and the three nanometer is probably 20% higher than five. So that is the structural pricing increase there. And it's probably, I would say, it's the value they're providing is greater next year. Okay, so you're saying that it's still going to be capturing that secular shift, especially into high performance chips. Um, Charles, though, speak to that geopolitical risk and what's happening as well as manufacturing comes online here in the U.S. If you believe that really is going to happen, um, does that premium come down for Taiwan Semi? Well, I, I think uh, the, the reshoring is going to take a few years. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, just going to uh, flip, uh, uh, flip a switch and everything is going to build up in the U.S. It typically takes uh, two years mm -hmm. uh, for every company to really build a capacity in any new geography. Um, I would say uh, Taiwan Semi, I think that the, the structure driver is really where they have the position they have in the industry at 5 nanometer, 3 nanometer. Just because the reshoring is happening, their dominant share position at those more advanced and process technology, it's not going to change overnight. It's probably going to take a few years down the road for that to change. Um, maybe I didn't quite get to that when I answered your first question. This is also a stock call. I think uh, one thing uh, I think investors, uh, including myself, I'm always amazed that the stocks typically bottom ahead of fundamentals. We know Taiwan Semi is going to have a cliff mm. in terms of revenue in Q1, but the stock should bottom well ahead of that. And uh, same for the whole industry. Okay. Uh, thank you. So, so when you when you look at the economic potential impacts of both uh, a global recession and the geopolitical risks, right? Mm -hmm. That 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 Taiwan potentially faces. Mm -hmm. Are you factoring all of that into this, or does that kind of provide more fuel for a bear case? Um, 
The thing, uh, let me address the geopolitics risk first. Um, I'm not really a macro analyst or geopolitical analyst, but I would say from a stock perspective, the best the geopolitical risk that the headlines are going to do is probably going to depress, I mean, dampen the multiple expansion of Taiwan Semi. They are trading at, the, I would say, the low end of almost the all-time low in terms of the P multiple right now. Uh, geopolitical headlines may dampen the, the multiple expansion when we get to the up cycle, but the company is going to grow 15 to 20 percent Kager over the next few years. That's after affecting that the next year they're going to grow below that long-term Kager. I would say the upside driven by the EPS growth is probably good enough. Um, maybe really? let me get to the other one. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say really quickly on, on uh, their CapEx guidance, mm -hmm. you know, some were unnerved by just the, the acts that they took to it. But your view is it actually just removed some of the unallocated CapEx from the prior year, right? That, that's correct. I think that they probably, well, the, one of the concerns when they hear, when people hear about Taiwan semi cutting 22 CapEx is they're going to have a slower supply growth into next year. Remember I said uh, building a fab typically takes about two years. What you spent this year is going to contribute to uh, uh, what your revenue growth potentially could be next year. But I think they actually probably did not really cut back whatever they are actually allocated for this year. Five nanometer expansion, three nanometer expansion. Those are the things that the process technology that's going to drive revenue growth, pricing growth, and they're going to ensure Taiwan Semi to have close to 10% growth next year. I don't think that's ever changed, despite the cuts. Okay, Charles, thanks for your insights. Charles Xi and Taiwan Semi now down more than 3%, Carl, as the NASDAQ is close to losing all of its gains just on the flat line. Yeah, uh, it was up almost 3% at the session high. Dow is up uh, 650, now up 121. Speaking of chips, Morgan Stanley out with a warning on a couple of names today which we'll talk about after the break. There they are, Logitech and Micron, looking for some high-conviction downside ahead of earnings, watching that slowdown in demand for PCs and for memory chips. We'll get you the latest when Logitech reports on Monday. Tech Check's back in a minute. Welcome back. Apple just unveiling a slate of new products. Steve Kovac joins us with the rundown. Steve, the headline for me is the entry-level iPad is now 36% more expensive. Yes, thank you for doing the math for me on that. Yeah, the biggest change here, John, it's uh, all of these new iPads, but that entry-level iPad is the biggest change we're seeing. New design, new colors, no more home button like some of the other more advanced iPad not models, but it also switches to USB-C for charging like some of the other iPads, and that's ahead of that EU decision that's kind of forcing Apple and other uh, gadget makers to use USB-C instead of other alternatives. And look, it is more expensive than the last one. The previous model was 329 bucks, 449 for this one on the Wi-Fi model, the base entry. Next up, there's an iPad Pro. This is uh, the new feature here is that M2 chip. This is the same chip for Macs that came out in the summer. And finally, a new Apple TV. Now, this is just a slight spec bump from the model that launched last year. And guess what, John? Also USB-C for the remote. So the theme 
here. We're kind of looking at this new charging transition ahead of those new EU rules. The question is, when does it come to the iPhone? And also, it's going to be a little messy to, uh, through this transition because you need a $9 dongle, John, to use the Apple Pencil with that base level iPad. And by the way, still to come, we're expecting next month, rumored new MacBook Pros with an even faster version of that M2 chip coming likely next month. And by the way, John, Apple earnings next Thursday. So we're going to get some more color on how demand is holding up for all these product lines. Guys, I'll send it back over to you. Yeah, Steve, I want to go back to the iPad. I, sure. I needed a Harvard Business School case study on what Apple was able to do here because uh, Amazon, Google, all came out with tablets that were lower priced, but Apple somehow managed to, to crowd them out of the tablet market and raise prices and put out an iPad Pro at the same time. It's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, John. And we've already seen them raise prices in some other countries for the iPhone uh, just last month. And now we're seeing it here uh, in the U.S. for this uh, new iPad model. They, they would probably argue, Apple would probably argue to you saying, well, it's a brand new design. There's a lot of new technology in here as a faster processor and so forth to kind of justify that. But again, this weird, messy transition Apple's going through right now with these new chargers. So get ready to buy a lot more dongles on top of your new iPad, John. Wonder why those fire tablets never really caught on. Steve, yeah. thank you. Thanks. Time now for a gut check. Morgan Stanley out with a new note saying they see the ad market for connected TV surpassing $13 billion in the years ahead, driven by YouTube, Amazon, and those ad tiers we've been talking about from Netflix and Disney+. Plus. But with those names eating up market share, who stands to lose? Are there listing names like Snap, Pinterest, and Paramount, adding it's too soon to tell how hard it's going to hit the likes of Roku. <laughs> Maybe it won't hit them. Rating the stock underweight, lowering estimates, cutting their target to 50 bucks. More tech check after this. A big trend in crypto has been Wall Street adoption as investors look for more accessible and secure ways to trade. But that said, for an asset where decentralization is a key selling point, are things really getting safer? Our Eamon Javers is here now with a look at the story of the crocodiles of Wall Street, one of crypto's biggest alleged laundering schemes so far. Yeah, absolutely, Carl. It's great to be here, uh, the spiritual home of CNBC on the floor. Uh, but look, it might seem like a huge win to hear that a hacker walk away, walked away with billions in stolen Bitcoin with a few strokes of the keyboard. The problem is converting that crypto into cash without getting caught, that's nearly impossible. The nearly 120,000 Bitcoin taken in the Bitfinex hack way back in 2016 were worth billions. But according to the criminal complaint, most of it was never spent. I asked top blockchain investigators to explain why. It's difficult to launder large amounts of cryptocurrency in short periods of time because it draws attention. If you try and just move that all to an exchange and cash out, then that's going to set off alarm bells. Investigators say about 80% of the stolen Bitcoin never moves from the digital wallet the hacker transfers them to. But according to the criminal complaint, the couple did try to cash out some of the crypto. Investigators say Liechtenstein uses some of the digital currency to purchase gold from a precious metals dealer using his home address for the shipment. None of the gold was found in the couple's apartment. Funds connected to the hack are also used to buy a $500 Walmart gift card. Investigators say Heather redeems in her name and New York City address. 
The couple's email addresses are also connected to gift cards purchased for Uber, Hotels.com, and PlayStation. When you have that interface between the crypto world and the real world, you in some way disclose your identity. Well, if you're buying a gift card with crypto, you generally need to give your address to whichever retailer the gift card is from. The prosecutors charged them here with the money laundering, but they didn't charge them with the initial hack. So that raises the possibility that there is a mystery hacker out there somewhere who's maybe not being charged. Who do you think that person is? It's a great question. And of course, what happens to the billions of dollars worth of recovered Bitcoin? You want to know what fight is coming? I can tell you right now. $3.6 billion, people are going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to get their hands on that pot of gold. I do think it's going to be a fight. I can imagine that in the future there will be movies about it. Now the Department of Justice is holding on to all that recovered Bitcoin. The big question now is who gets to keep it, as you just heard. People we spoke to who lost money in the hack say they want their Bitcoin back. And Bitfinex has publicly asserted its rights to the return of the stolen crypto. So there are lots of questions now about what happens next. But there seems to be a multi-billion dollar battle brewing here. Now you can check out the full Crocodile of Wall Street documentary right now over at YouTube.com slash CNBC. And Carl, we're going to talk to the Deputy Attorney General this afternoon, right here on this set. We're going to ask her what's going to happen to those billions of dollars now that the U.S. has confiscated that money. They've got to decide who's going to get it all. Oh, my God. Talk about the Wild West. Yeah. Uh, Eamon, look forward to that. And then, of course, uh, later on tonight, that's Sir Eamon Javers. Thanks, Carl. John? Yeah, I would just repeat that. Uh, and one thing that doesn't seem to be in question, that one person in that story who had the title cryptocurrency attorney, that's in demand. <laughs> that is tonight. 10 p.m. You can watch the whole thing. American Greed, the accused crypto couple right here on CNBC. We're back in a moment. Well, we mentioned this uh, downside reversal that we got. Uh, Dow was up 650 at the highs, but we've lost quite a bit of ground. NASDAQ has gone from a near 3% gain to about half a percent D. Yields are definitely the culprit. 10-year mm -hmm. uh, back above 4 as we got the dollar rallying again as well. Yeah, we also had another unionization vote at an Amazon facility. We just got those results. This is one in Albany, New York. The preliminary tally is in, and it appears that unionization effort has failed. 406 votes against 206 votes for, so not even close here. And this is according to the National Labor Relations Board, which counts those votes on camera. You can watch it yourself and count along, which many journalists do do. So, guys, uh, John, this is a setback, certainly. But remember, there was that historic win earlier this year at the Staten Island warehouse, which has more than 8,000 workers. At this particular warehouse, there's only about 800 what you take away from this, though, is they're really struggling to keep that momentum. However, these things, as we know, can take a lot of time, and this is likely to be contested, appealed, as the other ones have been. Yeah, I don't know. It comes just a couple days after Apple store workers in Oklahoma voted to unionize, the second Apple store to go. So it, it makes you wonder, Carl, whether as the labor market perhaps loosens up, the economy turns down, do labor unions feel like they have less leverage? How are the mm -hmm. workers go? Uh, yeah, although that part of New York State, you might argue it was a, a high bar to get that one uh, done. But we'll see. Obviously, a big night tonight with Netflix, and we'll look for Procter and Abbott and Travelers in the morning as this uh, busy week of earnings season heats up. Let's get to the half. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.